You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to Apple Insider Podcast, episode 169. And I'm your host, Victor. And joining me is the one and only, the unique, one of God's own creatures, Mikey Campbell. Mm, yes. Hello. Again. <laughs> Welcome it's been a long back. time. It's been a long time. Been a long time since we rock and rolled. Yep. So what's up? What's going on? I, you know, I, we got a word from our sponsor. I'm just going to go ahead and, and let that word get spoken for just a second. And right. we'll dive right in. Mikey, I know you wear glasses, right? I do. Have you ever worn contact lenses? I tried to, yes, in uh, my earlier days. Okay. So a lot of people think that buying lenses is really simple, right? You just you go ahead and order some and it's it. But what I've been hearing from this sponsor is that it's actually kind of difficult. There's there's a law in the United States that requires anyone who wears contacts to have a new prescription written every year just in order to be able to buy lenses, even if your vision hasn't changed and you have perfectly healthy eyes. And it gets really expensive and it's time-consuming and people put it off, which leads to further eye issues because, you know, you're either wearing old lenses or you aren't wearing the thing that's appropriate to your new prescription. And it's basically a bad habit. So there's this company called Simple Contacts. And instead of an annual appointment that costs up to $250 and has countless hours involved, you take their five-minute vision test online. And as long as your eyes look healthy, then one of their licensed ophthalmologists will extend your prescription, saving you time, money, and ensuring that you're never without fresh contacts. They have reviews on the App Store. They have an app on the App Store called Simple Contacts. And if you search Simple Contacts, you should be able to find it. And now this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye exam, but it, it does help you if really all you need to do is test that your current prescription still helps you see 2020 and renews that prescription. They don't write completely new prescriptions. They don't examine eye health. They just make sure that you're just doing good and can continue with what you're doing. So the offer here is that they are going to go ahead and um, and give a $30 discount, $30 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash Apple Insider. That is $30 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash Apple Insider. And, and like I said before, this isn't a replacement for a periodic full eye exam. But um, gosh, if you're wearing contacts and you like contacts, this should help keep you going. Thank you for that, and thank them for sponsoring the show, Mikey. Tell me, let's. We were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, iPhone SE two, right? So we, we've heard a bunch about some of the other devices, right? There's the six point one inch LCD based device. There's the the five inch and five point eight inch. 5.8 and a 6.5. Exactly. It's getting a little hard to keep track of it all. Um, Indeed. OLED devices. And we're, we're thinking of those trio as being a part of, of, you know, sort of an iPhone mid to flagship range. Right, right. But right. we haven't really talked about or had a whole lot of rumors about what's going on with iPhone SE. Indeed. There, are, there hasn't been uh, much of anything since the first SE launched, actually. Right. Minor updates along the way, but but nothing really yeah. earth-shattering. Yeah. Nothing great. Uh, so we did we did uh, hear about this week the uh, the latest in SE rumors is that a regulatory agency leaked or supposedly quote unquote leaked. They uh, published early uh, some not specifications, but at least the um, model numbers of some iPhones that are un or here heretofore unknown, and we can glean from that that it could be an SE two. 
So while we don't know much about the hardware, we know that it exists in some form, at least in Europe. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the way this works is that when you want a device to be sold in a country, it has to pass approval with several different testing organizations. And among those are the one that governs radio waves, right? And, and this is true for almost electronic, any electronic product, right? If you're an unintentional emitter, that is, you, your product isn't supposed to emit radio waves, but it, it could have potential interference with something that's not shielded, like a radio or a television. Mm -hmm. They want to test that and, and register it and prove it. Right. And for the iPhone, it is an intentional radiator. That is, it has radios in it. It has Wi-Fi. It has Bluetooth. It has LTE radios. So, so many. So many absolutely. Radios. You know, it's an intentional thing. And so it has to definitely be registered. And, and this going back to 2007 with the first iPhone, the reason that the first iPhone was announced six months before it actually launched was because Apple didn't trust the FCC in the United States to keep the device a secret. And so they announced it early by six months so that they could go ahead and have the FCC have the registration, publish whatever they wanted to publish, and not try and keep it quiet. Now, over time, the FCC's gotten better at keeping devices quiet and, and not leaking things out. But, you know, as we see here, these leaks occasionally happen, right? Yeah, usually with the, uh, usually in Europe, um, and with this uh, specific, uh, Entity, the Eurasian Economic Commission, they're uh, they're known to uh, have a extremely good track record. Well, track record, if you say, but uh, they whatever they publish usually or always ends up being some new device. The problem here is that while we know it's an iPhone of some sort, we don't know you know exactly if it is. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly anything about the phone itself, as as far as what it looks like, um, you know, its capabilities, etc. So it did say it's going to be running some flavor of iOS eleven point or iOS eleven, likely whatever the the current version releases. Have, right? Yeah, <laughs> probably by the time it comes out, eleven point four, I would say. Um, but uh, the SE2 seems like a logical choice considering the timing of the filing. Now, uh, it's far too early to be, you know, uh, putting in the 6.1 inch or the, the, the iPhone Trio, the fall iPhone Trio. It's uh, a bit too early to be getting regulatory approval for those. So uh, an iPhone SE2, you know, it's more in the realm of possibility. Do we, do we think that that means that an SE2 would launch earlier than the others? I would, I would think so. Um, typically, Apple has kind of given that it, it's the SE2 is more of like a constellation. I feel it doesn't really hold a it holds a place in the lineup, but it's not really marketed alongside the bigger phones. Right. The thing about this is that even though Apple has done separate releases for the SE and quieter releases for the SE. Um, we, we tend to hear more noise leading up to a launch. So if this launch were happening sooner rather than later, I would have thought we would have heard a little bit more about it by now. Indeed. Um, there have been rumblings. I think you and I discussed that before the call about the, uh, the SE2. But um, it's either there's not that much interest in this particular device, which I don't know. There's interest in every single Apple device, whether it be a phone or a new Apple Watch band. 
I mean, we've seen leaks of Apple Watch bands before. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that we're not hearing about it. And the SE is not a, a small device in the scheme of sales or, or adoption numbers. I mean, the SE is the device that gets sold to people with lower incomes. It's the device that gets sold for children. It's the device that gets sold along with a, a last year's model type phone to developing nations. Yeah, it's, so the, it's, it's the go-to for uh, burgeoning markets, which is really important for Apple. Um, and uh, I'm kind of surprised that they haven't uh, you know, kept up as well as they maybe could have with the, the SE line, considering its place um, for markets like, uh, say, markets in South America and um, certain Southeast Asian countries, which is kind of strange. But I don't know, maybe we'll see with this one. Well, welcome back to this very special segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. And joining me is Oliver Sale from Belkin. Oliver, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm fantastic, and I'm so glad you're here. So uh, let, let me ask, um, h- help me introduce you to my audience. You know, you're the the chief designer at Belkin and have been responsible for product design there for quite some time. How, how long has that been? Yeah, I've actually worked uh, at Belkin since the year 2000. So I'm uh, a longtime veteran and uh, still love it here. So I'm still around. And um, I've been fortunate uh, to be part of the um, building and uh, maintenance of this design organization from the beginning. And uh, I'm in my current position for the last uh, couple of years, uh, leading the design and user experience for Belkin. Great. And I want to make it really clear to my audience. So Belkin was recently acquired by a company named Foxconn, who, who build products like the iPhone. Uh, we're not going to talk about that at all. That's off limits for this discussion. We're going to focus solely on Belkin and, and Oliver's role at Belkin, so everyone knows. For, first of all, tell me what design is to you. What well, design is a uh, industrial design specifically, uh, which is my profession, uh, is uh, a, a very commercially driven endeavor to uh, find the right compromise between uh, user experience uh, considerations and manufacturing um, limitations and uh, retail channels and sales uh, efforts, um, understanding what people are encountering in their daily lives so that we can understand what problems they may have, solving those, some uh, a considerable amount of psychology and uh, understanding of um, what each of us deals with day to day. And of course, in our profession, we deal very much with mobile electronics. So we try to follow how people live with um, these amazing devices that we're surrounded with. And we're trying to find how uh, to help people to make the experience with those products better. And that's uh, how I would uh, characterize what uh, the design is that I work in and my team works in. It's a constant compromise. Yeah, you, you have so many different competing interests, right? You, you have to com- manage the, the price expectations and, and you know, trying to make, make sure that devices fit within a, a, a price budget. You have to manage designing something that, that meets the buyer's expectations and meets the end user consumer's expectations. It sounds really difficult. 
Yeah, it's uh, but it's also a lot of fun. You know, honestly, it's uh, I think it's I I couldn't wish for a more um, engaging and uh, intellectually challenging and artistically uh, interesting uh, type of work. So I'm I'm really excited to come to work every day, uh, despite all the compromising we have to make. Uh, it's it's a hell of a lot of fun, and um, I feel like we we are doing a really great job um, in in the way we uh, stretch ourselves and we challenge ourselves here to just do a really great job, even though people might not be willing to spend thousands of dollars on devices we create, but um, we make the best of what what people are willing to pay and we recognize that uh, every time people invite our products into their home it's a really great wonderful um, acknowledgement to the quality of our work so we're really proud of that so let's let's take a step back a little bit in in time back to the early days of your involvement at Belkin so what what was designing a product like at that time, can you pick a, a product from the back catalog of things that you worked on, and and tell us a little bit about the challenges making that, and how, um, gosh, it's kind of hard to put yourself back in those shoes, but but sort of how you felt about it at the time, and and something that you were really proud of from back then. Yeah, it's really fun to reminisce. Uh, in fact, uh, the people that were around back then, I am very fortunate to still be surrounded by quite a few of those uh, colleagues from from the earlier days. But when Belkin brought design into the company, uh, that goes back all the way to 2000. And we had um, a great opportunity to um, build on some uh, consultancy work that uh, we engaged in as a company. And at, at the time, I was working with uh, my former boss, Ernesto Quinteros, who is now the uh, first chief, chief design officer of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, he... Uh, he and I worked together with quite a few others that are here now at a company called Hauser in Westlake Village, California, where we uh, were fortunate enough to have Belkin as a client. And after about a year or two of, um, of this kind of working relationship, Belkin realized they needed to bring this capability in-house. It wouldn't go away anytime soon, and uh, it would be much more efficient to bring us into the, into the fold. And then Ernesto started... Belkin Innovation Design Group, and we started taking on after, so I, I was one of the first, I was actually the first guy he hired, but then we brought on quite a few others we knew and built a team, uh, and we established how design should be done and could be done in the context of an accessories company, which really didn't exist to that extent at the time. There, This is maybe today, when you look back at it, uh, mundane and sounds commonplace, but back then that definitely was not commonplace for a company like Belkin in the scale that Belkin had back then um, to have this kind of professional service in-house. So uh, when we started the company uh, design group, we uh, we immediately found ourselves completely overwhelmed by people who, who wanted to work with us inside the company because everybody started recognizing how important design would be as a differentiator. And some of the first products we make were, made were um, networking router. Back then, I remember that the, the first product we actually designed completely in-house at Belkin uh, without having external design um, input was 
our first networking router uh, and one of our first. And this was, again, going back to maybe then 2001 or late 2000. And uh, we quickly started um, getting involved in all manner of things, uh, whether they would be CD storage. You remember that? Mm. You remember CDs? <laughs> I probably do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we made things around CD storage and car charging and, of course, cables and USB hubs. USB hubs were one of the first product categories we got involved in. And, and that sort of... Um, uh, quickly resulted in us recognizing all these amazing opportunities we would have to add to the portfolio with high quality products. So um, we recognized we needed more design disciplines in the house. And so we added consumer insights. We started a user experience team. We started a branding team. We brought in um, rapid prototyping and a model making uh, team. Uh, mechanical engineering. We brought in electrical engineering, and uh, and so all of that kind of grew out of that uh, early the early stages of design. And some of the first products we made um, were still some of the most fun products that uh, I still have here, and and our team still is collecting some of these old things that that may not ever have seen tremendous gigantic commercial success, but they were just really great design driven products. We made my favorite product uh, in my career uh, is still the Tune Studio, which is a uh, recording, a four-channel recording mixer for back then 30-pin connector iPods. So that product launched, I believe, in 2007 or 2008, and uh, it, it's it's uh, it's kind of an exercise in what happens when you let industrial designers who like making music work with electrical engineers who like recording stuff and making music and and letting us loose and start making products uh, a product in this case that was really a passion project so it's uh, it's quite luxuriously um, appointed and probably never made us any money <laughs> but it's a great a great product and works really great and has some wonderful uh, little anecdotes around it I heard uh, Giddy Lee from Rush called Belkin up and won it one. And then uh, Steve Jobs, uh, we heard from some folks that were present, apparently said it kicks ass, which is still to this day my proudest moment ever in my design <laughs> career. <laughs> yeah, so that would be my long answer to your short question. Yeah, well, I, I have one of those products, actually. I have the Tune Studio. Oh, fantastic. I hope it works for you. Please, <laughs> please be kind. <laughs> so I, I haven't taken it out of the box in about a year, but I'm going to break it out after this call and and set it up and see how it goes again. You made actually two models of that kind of product. There was sort of the big four-channel product, and there was also a smaller-sized unit, if I remember. That's right, and that product was the, the Go Studio, and that was actually designed for what turned into a big trend, and you're doing it right now, podcasting. It was made for people who would want to go and record stereo uh, onto their iPod. And uh, all of us remember what it was like not being able to record something and listen back to it right away until the iPod was able to record to the onboard memory. And being able to play that back was actually a big deal. You know, that, so I remember that very fondly. It was a lot of fun to be part of that early stage. And of course, we designed the first microphone voice recorder attachment for the iPod. Um, uh, and, the, and a little bit earlier than that, 
So again, we have so we have a little history there of um, working with microphones, and a lot of us are musicians, so there was a lot of passion in creating those products. Yeah, and I remember back then with the microphone products for iPod, there was always this sort of push pull between people who wanted to use the uh, the the headphone jack and the the um, the remote interface on top, or or use the thirty pin connector on the bottom. That there were sort of two different two different ways to approach the kind of problem. Yeah, and we made both versions. You know, we made a mono version that went into the headphone jack, and then a stereo version that went into the thirty pin connector. Yeah. So we were there along the whole journey. You know, since the we actually made uh, the first thirty pin connector accessories. That was a great honor to be um, allowed to participate in that. Uh, and that was also a testament, I think, to in the early days, this is, goes back to 2003, even before 2003, um, when the 30-pin connector was being uh, developed, we were given that opportunity to collaborate uh, to build these first accessories because Apple had the great foresight to realize that people needed accessories. There was just, there was really not much else in the mobile space at the time that was explicitly geared to building an accessories ecosystem and that there was an explicit realization that accessories made the hero product more desirable. And you know, I can, I can uh, remember some, some very interesting conversations with uh, a very prominent cell phone manufacturer whose name shall remain nameless for this uh, point I'm making, but they were launching 200 cell phones a year, 200 different models where Apple had won. And uh, you may remember this very well, that caused a complete freak out in the industry because uh, people could recognize the benefit of having a much smaller portfolio, which would lend itself to building more desirable accessories. It made building accessories actually a commercially viable endeavor for third parties, which was really difficult to do before when you had to constantly shift and you couldn't really make products that attached in a really desirable way to the your mobile device because everything had to always be a compromise it had to fit multiple devices or it had to be compromised in some other way now you could actually focus on making it really great for the iphone or the ipod yeah and and that 200 device problem existed for a long time even if we were thinking about things that didn't attach exactly but were you know cases soft goods and and those sorts of things it it really made it difficult because you had to develop for all of that different rage to satisfy a buyer's wishes, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And if you try to make a business out of that, uh, you can imagine how difficult it is to make uh, a considerable return on your investment if if uh, the number of accessories you sell are limited by, by so many SKUs that you have to develop. It's just really not commercially very attractive, you know. It, it, the only way it made sense back at that time was if, say, a, a carrier, for example, launched one of those 200 devices as their flagship kind of thing for that season, and then you could get the contracts to build the cases for that one thing. But any other way, it just didn't make sense, did it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then conversely, if you think about the position of the customer and the user, you're going to be at the receiving end of that maybe com- highly compromised product where, you know, if you have a if you choose to purchase a, a hero product, for lack of a better term, that a, a phone or a mobile device that is not the top seller, you're going to not have a great selection of accessories. 
So that very quickly, I think, changed the market. And we're seeing it now where um, there is an, an unbelievable amount of selection of accessories for a very small amount of products. And that's directly related to the return on investment you can expect as an accessories manufacturer. It's just simply not commercially viable to make something for everybody. Okay. We've got another order from our sponsor. Are you ready? I am. Good. So Nutrafol is a new, safe, and effective strategy to take control of your hair health. It's made with 100% drug-free nutraceutical ingredients clinically shown to improve thinning hair. It's also recommended by over 850 top physicians and some of the top salons in the country. So there, there are a lot of things that determine hair loss or hair thinness or hair health. And it's not just genetics that have it out for your hair. Stress, DHT levels, diet, environmental toxins, everything has been discovered. They've all been discovered to compromise hair health. And whatever the causes, you're catching reflection in the mirror and it gives you concern. Maybe you've tried drugs on the market. Maybe you're interested in something that's 100% drug-free. Maybe you just want to have thicker hair. Leveraging the latest, greatest in biotechnology, Nutrafol's botanical ingredients are shown to improve hair health without compromising sexual health or any other kind. In fact, one of Nutrafol's key ingredients, saw palmetto, has been shown to support healthier libido. So whatever your hair means to you, it's worth fighting for. It's, it's been decades since anyone's made meaningful advancements in the hair health industry, but a new world of science and research has changed the way we think about hair and its relationship to our overall health. And Nutrafol scientists and researchers have worked for years to come up with a formula that multi-targets all these various causes, improving hair from within. Now, it's not a magic pill. It's just a strategy to grow hair from within by nourishing the environment that makes hair happy. It's like a plant. You know, you have to feed, feed and water it, but if the soil isn't healthy, then it can't thrive. The things that they'd like me to make sure to point out to you are that Nutrafol is 100% drug-free, that it's a nutraceutical, it's made of clinically tested medical-grade botanical ingredients, so there are no bad side effects and no compromise to overall wellness. Many users report better sleep, better digestion, feelings of calm, and good skin health. And it's manufactured in the United States in an FDA-certified facility. It has no GMO, soy, eggs, dairy, gluten, peanuts, shellfish, tree nuts, wheat, yeast, artificial flavors, or colors. And it's available in two distinct formulas, one for men and one for women, to suit your specific metabolic needs. Go to Nutrafol, that's N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com to learn more. So what, what has changed from, from that time to today? What, what's changed in the accessories landscape and what's changed in terms of, of how you design within this, this segment? Well, what's changed first and foremost, of course, is that we have a much higher level of design quality across the board, I think, in our competition. Uh, back then, we were, I believe, we were the first accessories manufacturer to invest the way we were investing in our design culture. We, we um, really have, I think, a fantastic story there about changing the organization uh, into it the way uh, into the organization is today. That's very design conscious and and design driven. But uh, the whole industry, I think, uh, not, you know, the, uh, many many of our competitors have. Um, uh, emulated a similar method and are striving to provide really high quality accessories that is just now I think in our culture so much more present the 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 notion of design thinking and good design and customers being aware of that and demanding high quality product that's I think really what changed get some of the accessories that were available 10 15 years ago some of it is laughable you know it's just you, you wouldn't accept it today 
things have, uh, you know, remember when people were buying silicon phone cases? You oh, know, that, yes. <laughs> that, that just no longer flies. Nobody buys that anymore. Well, and I mean, I you know, we used yeah. to have the, the silicone jam jackets or tune jackets or things like that for, uh, for iPods. But you're right. No one would, would consider buying one of those for an iPhone today. It, it just didn't, you know, suffice anymore. So people have higher expectations. People also have much greater capabilities uh, in, in terms of production. So companies have more uh, a wider breadth of uh, available manufacturing methods. There are more manufacturers in this space. So the competition is much, much, uh, I think, better quality overall. Uh, is that really that definitely has changed, uh, and I think that's a it's a great thing. That's just um, the result of um, a lot of really smart designers and engineers and marketers understanding people better. So that's a good thing, I think, in general, um, for sure. Uh, so I think the the level of sophistication for a lot of our accessories um, in our space has. Um, I would say, was expected and has has um, worked as expected. We're making better stuff. Um, but what hasn't changed so much is um, perhaps how much people are willing to pay for those accessories. And that's another interesting thing. I think if you look at the the um, the ASPs in our space, I think they're still within the same kind of range. So that that is, you know, I think another um, true thing in our industry that. Um, you know, Moore's law somewhat applies here in a different manifestation of Moore's law. Um, you know, the technology improves constantly, but pricing doesn't. So it means we we can't charge more for much better accessories today. So that's that's maybe another thing that to consider. Um, people are spending money the way they were spending it 15 years ago. The amounts they're willing to spend or able to spend hasn't necessarily changed. So expectations are much higher. Um, so that continues to, to force us to, to be smarter about the way we design and engineer our products. Yeah, manufacturing is improved. And, and the, of course, the materials and things that you have at your disposal has, has improved, right? You know, microcontroller units and things like that. But you're, you're right, that's, uh, the, the price pressure remains about the same. The margin pressure remains about the same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but that's also, I think, maybe not surprising. Well, it's it's interesting in that people have, have sort of accepted the rising prices of the devices themselves. You know, a few years ago, we would have we would have been uh, shocked by the notion of an iPhone that cost over a thousand dollars. But now we seem to have accepted it. But we're still well, limited to around the thirty dollar retail space for the case. Yeah, I think what, that's an interesting um, phenomenon, I believe. There is a considerable segment of the market that values high-quality products and is willing to spend more. So I think that is something that, um, that's an interesting phenomenon. If you look at, um, look back, gosh, I think this would be also 15 years plus back, when uh, Nokia spun off uh, Virtu under Frank Nuovo, uh, when when that movement of very very expensive luxury goods electronics was first started, I think I might be wrong. This might be even longer ago, and they're still around to some degree, I think as well. Um, that that opened up a whole new luxury segment, and people I think have uh, to some degree spurned on by social media 
begun to use our our mobile technology to to also demonstrate maybe a perception of an elevated taste or you know to really show our style and you know social media has really helped with that i think uh to um uh, help people show off their great taste and you spend a little bit more and now you can maybe show off your great taste a little bit more i think that's that plays into human nature you know we want nice things people are um proud to own nice things and when you can spend a little bit more money i think it's great to have some options out there that uh, help you uh, demonstrate your taste and your style not just in the devices you buy and in the furniture you buy and the things you surround yourself with at home but also in those accessories and that really is uh, an interesting um, consideration where we're very cognizant of that and, and that there is a, a desire, I think, in the marketplace uh, to honor beautiful things with will it being willing to spend a little bit more money on them and having the option to uh, have accessories that that you can surround yourself with in your home that don't just work great with your hero device and they match the hero device and they look like the hero device. But they pay homage to your lifestyle, and they they surround your your you and your um, your home in a style that matches your home and your your taste in furniture and your taste in dishes and tableware and drapes, you know, rather than your taste in which iPhone flavor you you currently use. And that's a really exciting thing for us, and we're. Uh, very anxious to launch a few products that will um, fall into that category. But again, like in terms of what we we don't want to charge uh, huge amounts of money for those products. That's not what we're out to do uh, at Belkin. We um, we believe there is is great um, there's a there's a great thing about making things available for a really really good price. That's that's part of our mission as well is to give you really great value. You know, I was this, this sort of feeds into something that I've I've been thinking a lot about and experiencing myself. So, uh, you know, years ago, I, I worked for a competitor of yours, Griffin Technology, who, of course, have also now been purchased. Um, and, and the people that I worked with there, we had a very strong design team. I think we were probably uh, emulating what you were doing on the other side of the country. You know, we, we had mechanical engineers and modeling crew and um and a whole industrial design group of about, I, I want to say, 15 to 30 designers. I can't remember at the time. It grew over time. And we were doing that because we we were, were like you. We were really trying to bring beauty into these this space that had, had for so long been flooded with things that really were, were sort of pedestrian or not as well designed or not as beautiful as they could be. And uh, I was thinking about this uh, also in terms of Johnny Ives' interview at TechFest last October, where he was talking about when he sees things in the world, he always sees what's behind them. He feels like he sees the sort of design behind the object, and very frequently he's offended by most of what he's surrounded by. That that this is sort of the curse of being a designer for him is that he sees the the worst in all of these things that are around him and wishes they could all be done better. Poor, I, I feel bad for for Johnny. I feel bad. No, but in all seriousness, I mean, it's interesting. I I remember very well that maybe 
10 years or so ago, I would have been maybe more affected by this kind of bug also. But I think I've become a lot more, uh, a lot less cynical over the years and uh, more optimistic about uh, the opportunities behind that. You know, I think uh, I used to say that, you know, the curse of the designer is to always look at things and have an opinion about everything and, and you know, not be happy about the things you're surrounded with if you don't have an, op you know, an influence on what they look like. But, you know, I, I think everybody needs to just take a chill pill and lighten up a little bit, you know. <laughs> I, think, um, I think all of those things are great opportunities for designers. And, and honestly, I think what, what profession offers more uh, actually ability to affect that? Like we can, as designers, we're able to be chameleons and get involved in a whole bunch of things from designing objects to designing systems and so and and services and you know anything you can think about just because we have training and experience that allows us to be a psychologist to understand what's behind people's emotional responses to how things work look and feel and then actually turn that into a tangible object or something that that actually affects how people live you know just by let's say you're a graphic designer design a better system for finding your way around a museum that's an amazing thing that we can do as designers or you know or help you get around a city by doing better signage and wayfinding or or designing uh, better accessories for mobile technology that, that there's so much there that I'm still incredibly excited about today. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm nowhere feeling like this is finished. This is, you know, as long as there are going to be humans that live in an ever-changing world, those devices that are developed by Johnny and his team and people in other companies that make amazing technology like that are, are never going to be able to keep track of that. It's like it's just like how cars can never be always up to date and never be, you know, the, the first day you buy your brand new car, even if it's the most, uh, you know, amazing Tesla that has all the latest technology, two years down the road, something is not no longer going to be up to speed. And it's as long obsolete, as that, right? It's somewhat obsolete. Maybe Tesla less so than some other brands. But the point is, I, I would say more so actually, to... because they keep updating down the, as they keep producing. Yeah, maybe I think the the way I think about it, they think I, I have this perception that Tesla is doing a little better job predicting upgradability. So maybe, you know, uh, maybe that's why I think maybe they're less <laughs> so out there, perhaps. I'm not sure. Just think about software and integrating technology for perhaps, you know. Yeah. But I think as long as those those uh, as long as humans are in the mix, designers are always going to need to build these bridge technologies, these these accessories that that um, that then allow us to have a better experience for for the duration, you know. Even just thinking about mundane things, and you said you used one of my favorite words, pedestrian. Pedestrian things, uh, ironically, like uh, using a bicycle with your technology. Uh, that you know, just making a bicycle work with a phone is a is a is a great example. Like, how do you mount your your phone on your bike? Those are you know. The, the people that make the bike don't think about the phone enough. So again, there's opportunity, there's opportunity everywhere. And that's what I find so incredibly engaging and entertaining about this, uh, this world we're in. And, you know, when I think when you're Johnny, then you have maybe a different, 
um, set of tools to work with, right? And and working with uh, this incredible organization that he's part of, that uh, they have other aspirations. Maybe they go a little bit in a different direction. They they certainly have different uh, a different scale of resources at their disposal that that you know we never did where I was working or you know I don't know that that you were you had access to you know you have to design within the limits of what your manufacturer is able of doing and and for I think his organization they're able to work with their manufacturers to invent new ways of doing things. Yeah, and and I think that's uh, tremendous. You know, that's really tremendous. But I think everything is has pros and cons. You know, like um, for somebody like me who likes to be involved and likes to actually see all the aspects of everything that is involved in manufacturing and marketing and selling, and uh, and really wants to be part of all of those stages. That's that's a whole different world that that maybe isn't as much. What I aspire to do. So I'm really happy uh, to work in an organization that has um, quite a few fewer people, and quite a um, you know it's it's not it's not great to have lesser resources, but being able to touch many more aspects of products I think is really valuable as well. And really um, for a designer, uh, I think hopefully I can speak for the designers on my team more engaging and and allows us to be more to actually see the effect of everything we do so immediately that's a wonderful part of being a smaller uh, a part of a smaller organization as you have been where you can actually see everything that somebody touches you can follow it along and uh, there's not maybe 30,000 people involved in something but maybe 30 and and I think that's uh that's really great, you know. When I'm I'm originally from Germany, and uh, when I tell my my parents, hey, so we just launched this new thing, and you can actually go see that in the store somewhere down uh, down the street. That's pretty cool because, you know, when when I say, you know, this designer and I, you know, Mitchell and I, or or Barry and I, or Pear and I, or whomever uh, designed this thing, then that actually means we actually designed that thing. It doesn't mean we just designed the shade of color that is present on that button, you know. I hope that analogy makes sense. Yeah. So what what's what's the biggest challenge that you face these days? How what what is the the what are the challenges facing design organizations today? Design organizations uh like uh, yeah, well, I think there's a there's a much greater ubiquity of design services around. I think anyone in the service industry, um, anyone in the service industry now, I think compared to maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, is very, very familiar with the concept of design service. You look around, you find design operations and design ops and, and software development, and you find, you know, uh, BCG Digital Ventures, uh, McKinsey investing uh, like IDO in, in venture capital-driven business design i mean the the design industry is so is becoming so important in our society that's i think uh, an unbelievable opportunity while it is a challenge the challenge is it's harder to differentiate yourself differentiate yourself um, by having design it's harder because there really aren't all that many companies that have really poor design out there they thankfully they still exist it makes our life a little easier. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Sure. But 
Um, uh, I think the challenge is the sophistication level uh, is going up and the expectation level is going up. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, if you if you can't hang, can get out. You know, it's it's uh, the people that are going to be able to adapt to a higher level of expectation in our industry are going to survive. They're going to make it. Uh, and it's not just making beautiful things. That's the great misperception. It's making beautiful things people want to buy and that they want to pay for with the right appropriate amount of money that allow you to build a business, sustain a business, and continue it on and evolve it. Uh, making beautiful things is really pointless unless it can sustain a business. If that's what you do, then call it art. You know, uh, and and there are many many businesses out there that make incredibly beautiful things. You know, whether it's um, through the use of materials or their aesthetic differentiation, or it has maybe there's an eco-friendly approach, or there are other social approaches. All of those things are all wonderful, um, but the, the company that manages to combine all of those qualities into a sellable product that can sustain an organization is going to succeed. And that's our aspiration here at Belkin is to uh, be really thoughtful uh, in our uh, approach. We've seen our industry, and you're very well aware of it, uh, go through a lot. Our competitive industry is um, under a lot of strain. There are not a lot of players in this industry that are still around and independent. Yeah, there's, uh, there's been a big sort of um, how, how to put it, other than than to say that they've sort of all been been being absorbed by each other at this point. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that's 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 a result of incredible competitive pressure, um, an overcrowded marketplace. A, uh, I think, and and we're not you know, free from, from some of the pitfalls, but, you know, having, uh, like engaging deeply in, in, in over and buying too many products that you then can't sell that are sitting in warehouses that are difficult to sell through when you, when everything you make is attached to hero devices that are unpredictable. Uh, that's a tough market to be in and to sustain yourself in. So it's really, really important to be diverse, to be thoughtful, to not make everything you could possibly make. But to say no, I mean that's an that's a trite old thing to say, but it's so true in in this market. Uh, a short-term success can can kill you uh, because if you don't know when to stop, you're gonna be done next year, right? So you have to be really careful and thoughtful. So we're really really aware of that, um, and design plays a major role in that. Design is of course on the surface responsible for how something looks, what it looks like, and maybe what it feels like. But really, when you dig deeper, design's influence in commercial success is much, much, much greater. When it's done well, design can also drive the amount of effort you put into every aspect of the product you create. What's truly worth it? What is truly worth investing in? What is not worth investing in because nobody pays you for it? Understanding those details is really a next level of sophistication that in a, in a well-oiled organization will permeate everything. So this design thinking is in the finance team, this design thinking is in uh, the global supply chain management team and so on. And that's really where where um, I feel Belkin is in a good space. That's why you know we've built this for a long time and it's not a fly-by-night organization. At this point, we really feel really good about um, how deeply design thinking has permeated us. 
And so the influence of designers and the opportunity for designers is to think like that. Think like a business person, and that puts you in a better spot. So when, when you say think like a business person, what are the kinds of questions that you, you ask yourselves besides just the, the, the simple, is this something that enough people are going to buy and are people going to buy it only in the short term or the long term? What are the kinds of things that go through your heads? I think a, a really well thought out product begins with how you talk about it uh, when it's finished. You know, like so, I'm I'm uh, I'm very fortunate to have some really smart colleagues, and uh, one of the smartest colleagues I have is our our PR director, uh, Jen, who um, has made made it very clear that unless we are uh, very thoughtful in the way we design our products, she's not going to have anything to talk about when the product launches because it may not be as interesting as we all think. So that, that that's you know just this the notion that you need to understand marketing really well and marketing and design have to be in sync with one another as we develop something is a really really important notion. That's that's a really really key ingredient in in how we will how we can build a long term strategic uh, sustainable product. And so design thinking really has to extend into marketing and then into the cost aspects of everything we make. We need to understand and ask some hard questions early on. If we want to make something that's made of metal, then we better know that we can actually afford to make that for the price that we're willing to charge a customer for. Because if the customer votes with their wallet that that's too expensive, then that can be as beautiful as it wants to be. It's, it's kind of pointless. And of course, our industry is littered with that, right? I mean, there's, there's just hundreds and thousands of products out there that um, that the customer has to choose from. It's very rare that there's only one choice and that you're in a sort of uniquely elevated place where you can rely on the technology inside exclusively. That happens once in a while. And we're you know fortunate to, to occasionally be a company that can bring that to customers. But uh, most of the time we're up to, uh, against a whole bunch of competitors that are ju trying just as hard in many ways uh, to make a viable product. And sometimes they can make things for cheaper. So our job as designers is to justify why it's worth more to buy it from us. And uh, what's exciting, I think, is that truly we're, we're a, a company that makes products of higher quality than most of our competitors can. That's due to the depth of design and engineering thinking that permeates every product that we develop. So, um, you know, I'm not sure that that completely answers your question. I think I went off on a little tangent, as it's my habit. I apologize. But uh, that's where I think design is absolutely essential uh, to have part of the entire process. It's not just making something look a certain way and then handing it off to a development team. That's why every consultant always cries over what happens to their product after they design it. That is just simply because if, if you're a consultant, you're going to be cut off from um, joining the product on its journey, which is what we've done very differently here. The design team is part of the entire journey and has to take responsibilities at the beginning and at the end, all the way through to make sure the design is appropriate to what we're trying to accomplish. Okay. That's that is actually a great answer, and I thank you for 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 going off on that tangent. That's a good explanation. Um, I, I really appreciate how much time you've given me. So I really I think I want to ask one last question. Um, you and and Belkin have had 
a large number of, I would say, successful products over the years. Can I ask you to look back and, and tell me about what the most interesting failure or less successful product was? I, I know you mentioned the the uh, the Tune Dock before, but I think that was successful in terms of what it tried to accomplish. Um, tell me about something that wasn't as successful. Gosh, yeah, I should have waited to tell you about this Tune Studio. That would have been a good one. Um, <laughs> But there were some. There were many, many others, of course. And if I go back in history, I think uh, you go back five plus years. You start looking at a lot of products that were developed with maybe less sophisticated business insights. And let's say ten years ago, the business insights capabilities we would have had would have been a little bit less sophisticated, perhaps. So we would have taken maybe bigger risks in developing certain things. I can tell you a fun story about a product that uh, we developed that many people will not know uh, and remember. But it still was a fun one. When we designed the first 30-pin iPod accessories, we were approached by Volkswagen. And um, Apple and Volkswagen did a commercial promotion in which Volkswagen was uh, selling off uh, a large stock of VW Beetles. This would have been probably 2003, 2004, something like that. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but quite a while ago. And we developed a cup holder mount for an iPod that was specifically designed for the VW Beetle. And it was called a Tune Dock. Now, I, I have the Tune Dock that was the more widely distributed one. The, the suction cup one. Well, there, there's a suction cup inside the iPod holder and then a, a screw that screws into a sort of gray cup holder mount. I, I love you, man. I, I'm amazed you have that stuff. That's really great. So that product, I think, was awesome because, first of all, we got away with putting suction cups on stuff. That that alone, I think, deserves uh, uh, some kudos. Uh, someone here came up with the, and I will not tell you his name, but he knows, uh, with the word air grip technology, which I still, like a lot of us still use that because it's so funny to call a suction cup air grip technology. But that product was actually really great. It's a, a TPU flexible cup that is designed to wedge into a cup holder cup. And it has, like you described, a molded plastic screw, that like, very large threaded screw that uh, helps you to adjust height. You can go in and out and make it higher, taller, and lower. And then a ratcheting um, a neck adjustment that was really simple with a spring, uh, leaf spring. Yeah, that's with, the tilt adjustment. That's the tilt adjustment. Uh, and then it has a suction cup uh, holder for an iPod, which back then, of course, had a stainless steel polished backside. Very beautiful. And there was, uh, you know, very, very fun for us. They made a, uh, a commercial in which the uh, the Beetle was uh, basically the advertisement was buy a Beetle, you get an iPod with it. And they came with the tune dock. And that was a really, really fun product. But it never really got any kind of commercial you know, publicity. We didn't really advertise it other than this, but but what a what a goofy, weird, interesting product that I think though works really well. So you know, you just never know. We probably wouldn't make something like this today. A suction cup probably isn't quite on the money for the kind of perception of value that we want to bring, but it worked really super well. So I still look back really fondly on that. And there were a whole bunch of different car holders and car mounts uh, subsequently, even adapting that cup holder mount to 
the Jetta, where the Jetta has this an elaborate fold-out cup holder mechanism, and we gave you a little adapter cup that still made that work with the same, uh, with that Jetta cup holder. But fun stuff, you know. And there's dozens of those types of things uh, that I could tell you about for 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 days on end. I think. And I, I want to thank you so much. I promised that would be my last question. I was going to to ask, um, you know, what your advice would be to people aspiring to to join a design team or become a part of of uh, the design field like this you know what what should they try and learn from um i'm i'm really fortunate to still have quite a great connection to my uh, college uh, my alma mater which is art center college of design here in pasadena california and i go back there quite a bit to see um students that are uh, in the middle of their school or they're just about to finish school. And I can tell you that the level of sophistication and in their skills has gone up and up and up. So people who can sketch and render and just make beautiful presentations and all that stuff. None of that means anything at all if your mind isn't humble and you're not out there to learn about people. So my advice is... You choose your path. You can be a person who's maybe really great at giving form. You can be great at thinking about business strategy or all of that stuff. But the most important thing, the most valuable thing to, uh, to I think, us as humans as well as business people is to be really great at understanding people, to try to be really empathetic and to be humble and step back and not design for you, but design for someone else. And that is also much more interesting, I think, to just be, to constantly challenge yourself to try to do better in that field. That would be my advice. Thank you. Well, Oliver Sale of Belkin, I, I'm so happy that you are here. Um, and of course, people can find Belkin products in, in all kinds of retailers. Um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad you joined us today. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh uh, looking forward to seeing your work all over the internet. Thank you, Victor. A story that we published today, actually, that, that says that the International Monetary Fund released a report this month, and that report says that some national economies are intrinsically tied to the future of the iPhone. So, right. you know, it's it's uh, the smartphone sales and production amounted to $3.6 trillion of the global economy in 2017. Yeah. Uh, that industry represents 5.7% of Chinese exports, and in Ireland, iPhone exports alone are said to have to basically a quarter of the country's economic growth in terms of value. Uh, yeah, right. That's again the uh, huge yeah, the, the international uh, Apple sales comes into play there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, all this money has to go somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, Apple's the biggest tech company, and got there largely because of iPhone. So there's not surprising that, uh, you know, it's tied to something. I mean, there's a massive effort to create iPhone and, you know, upkeep that line across the world. So I, I mean, it, it is interesting to see recognition from, um, NGOs. So, yeah. So let me ask if the, if the smartphone upgrade cycle is decaying a little bit, right? If people are holding mm -hmm. to their phones longer, not feeling the need to upgrade, then what what kind of crisis does that mean for these countries whose futures are tied to the iPhone? 
Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't like to speculate, but um, I, I think – I don't know. It, it's an interesting question. I think they'd be okay, obviously. I'm um, not an economic expert, uh, but I, it, smartphones aren't decreasing at such a, a pace that it would be um, – you know, it would be disturbing to international economies. And we've seen a, a slow kind of you know valley in the most recent months, but um, it's obviously nothing like the PC market, which is I don't know contracting one or two percent every quarter. Mm-hmm. It's uh, which you know I mean that that in itself is being replaced by things like smartphones and and tablets. So um, I don't know. I think by the time that we see a, a major downfall in smartphones, we'll see the rise of some new technology. Uh, whether I don't know, I don't think it's going to be wearables, but who knows? Might be wearables might get to that point where we can actually replace our smartphone with it. I don't, I don't really see that foresee that happening anytime soon. Well, let me ask you: you still wearing your Apple Watch? Um, yeah, I am, but I would definitely not rely on it. I, I would I wouldn't throw out my iPhone just because the Apple Watch has cellular connectivity. That's for sure. Okay. I mean, just just on the sheer fact that I need a screen to look at. Right. I mean, I, thinking down the road, if if cellular connectivity makes the watch eventually become a device that can stand on its own two feet, as it were. You know, right now it's very dependent on an iPhone for some of the data that it gets for things like emails, for, for stuff like that. Although there is an application called Canary that allows you to actually respond to emails properly from the watch. Um, you know, over time, the, the watch becomes more of a first citizen kind of thing rather yeah. than, than dependent would, on. It's, it, I mean, uh, the things that are going on now, I mean, uh, you, you just heard about uh, Intel's um, new oh, device group, right? Right. The, the, uh, the yeah. vault glasses that they were working yeah, on. Yeah, right. So but, but that's more of an Intel problem than anything, right? They, yeah, right. They, Intel uh, does this thing where they buy up someone because they have interesting technology. They hold it for a little while, and then they drop it and abandon it. And they did that with sad. the Basis smartwatch. They did that with the Vault here. They've done it countless other times. Yeah, right. The, but technology like that that um, miniaturizes the d- display on a physical level but allows you to view a display you know, as you would, say, a smartphone – Something like that, I could see replacing a smartphone one day, you know, um, uh, miniaturizing the physical device, but not miniaturizing the, the UI or the, the space that you use on a day-to-day basis to, you know, access your emails or browse the web or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you do with your smartphone, which is basically everything. And of course, glasses like that are just one speed bump on the way to smart contact lenses. Right, right. Which I mean, there, there's already yeah, there's there's already companies that are um, well on their way to toward uh, getting that done. Um, maybe not this decade, but probably next uh, the 2020s sometime. Well, after so smart I mean, contact lenses, you know, you could do smart eye drops Implant. Ooh. or implants. Or implants. Would you do? Would you get an implant? If it was, if it was, say, say it was an implant. You could uh, that would project a digital display onto your retina or on into your eye, but it was permanent and you I, I couldn't mean, take it out. Would you do for forget about on the eye or in the eye, straight to the optic nerve? Hmm? Yeah, just tap so the optic say, nerve. Go direct. All right. Would you do it? Um, 
you know, I would I would hope for things that were upgradable, and I would I would want to see a second or third generation kind of thing as opposed to being the first generation guinea pig. Well, I mean, by the time we get the technology <laughs> in America, it'll it'll probably be five generations. Yeah, right. You know, by the time it gets uh, just just it gets past our displaying a modicum of caution here. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things good. that I, I've I've thought about besides the the we, we keep thinking of the eye as the only way of receiving information, the the optic nerve kind of thing. But I, I think there should also be exploration into smart tattoos. You know, it's it's a lot less right. scary to do a display in your arm, for example, right. than it is to tap the optic nerve. Interesting. Powered by a piezoelectric uh, means. Um, uh, kinetic and heat, right? Use the, use what your body already generates. Exactly. So you're thinking like a display on your arm. Why not? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They already have the uh, so quote unquote smart tattoos that. Uh, are basically just uh, bioreactors that react to chemicals in your bloodstream. You've seen those, right? Yeah. Yeah. Early days. Uh, if only we were born uh, 50 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, 50 years from now, we'd still be talking about this one, right? Tim Cook has denied that Apple is going to merge Mac OS and iOS. Smooth transition, and yes, I think we will. But uh, yeah, interesting, considering um, that there's been so much uh, – well, not so much, but there's – it's been a kind of like a hornet's nest. Well, of, break of break out the case here. You know, We've been talking about this for two or three years easily. Yeah. And well, two or three I mean, years ago, they dumped iPhoto for photos, which was the same right? photos right. application that was on iOS. Right. With a little bit of, of sprucing up for the Mac interface. But more or less, that was the point was that they were going to have photos on iOS and photos on macOS. And that right. this was happening with other parts of macOS, that in some ways macOS was becoming closer towards what iOS is. Right. I think there is a distinction to be made between borrowing apps and software from one operating system or, you know, uh, not, you know, source code things that go onto the source code, things that run on the source code, rather than, um, you know, and, and porting that, that over from iOS to macOS, say, or vice versa. Right. But so, so that's been the history. There's been this progression yeah. of things being borrowed back over. Yeah. iOS, of course, and, had its origins in macOS 10, but with a different interface. Right. right. And, and now we were seeing the cro interface cross-pollinate the reverse direction. Now, there's this rumor about Project Marzipan, right? Right, which uh, would, quote-unquote, merge, but it's not really merging. It's, uh, it, reports have said that it, that would merge the two, but it's not really merging. It's just um, it would allow iOS apps to hop on to macOS or to be run on, on macOS. So instead of Apple making a macOS native port, they would go through this program to... Uh, get an iOS app onto macOS fairly easily, I'd assume. Right, but, but running as first-class citizens as opposed to running through a simulator or emulator in Xcode. Yeah, right, exactly. So a uh, an app that you could assumedly put on your dock or you know wherever it is you access your apps most um, and give it that extra outlet or extra means of access. So instead of doing continuity features, you know, Flipping over, like if a third-party app has both an iOS and macOS, instead of um, you know porting it over with share sheets or something, you can just uh, it would all be native. It would be an iOS app 
running on Mac OS, right. which is interesting, which then gave uh, way to other rumors and reports that um, that those the two operating systems themselves would merge and become one. Right. Well, there's the custom silicon rumor as well, which is the, the, the theory that the touch bar in the MacBook Pros is essentially a small iOS machine, right? right? It has a, yeah, it has a, <clears throat> it has the same chip, but it doesn't perform exactly the same um, functions as it does on on iOS. But there is the chip, but yes. it is living there, and yeah. and we noticed that same chip in the iMac Pro, for example. So the idea is that Apple would would work on custom silicon processors for Macs that would either allow them to stay on Intel, but also run iOS things natively on, on that custom iOS, you know, on that custom E-series or S-series or whatever you want to call it chip. Right. Or that this would lead to a progression of ARM-based Macs. Since, you know, the Geekbench scores say that for at least single-threaded purposes that the A-series chips in the iPad Pro, for example, are much faster than the i5 Intel chips. So that this right. would lead to, you know, yeah. porting of Macs over to an ARM-based architecture. Uh, in which would pave the road to creating a unified operating system. Um, which Cook says we're not getting. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Steve Jobs also said uh, we wouldn't get an iPhone. Steve Jobs also said we'd never get an iPod that would play video. Steve Jobs said a lot of things. Right before they actually announced those things. But that's, that's the eh? typical marketing game for them. Yeah. This could be more of the same. Um. So, so you could read this as saying that, yes, they're working on merging it, but that they're going to go about doing it in a way that shouldn't lead to many compromises. Right. Um, it, it's the way that uh, he said it. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, read the quote, it's uh, we, we don't believe in sort. We don't believe in sort of watering down one for the other. Both are incredible. So, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, propping up both, playing up both, of course. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about it? I, I, I wouldn't want an iOS UI on a Mac. So what I've said in this show before is that uh, for Apple, obviously iOS devices are the main source of income and that the, the Mac exists for them as a way for developers to work on Xcode. That yes, they're very happy that Microsoft has Office for the Mac. Yes, they're very happy that that people like to use Macs. But as far as they're concerned, pretty much everything that people do on a Mac could be done on an iOS device, uh, except for Xcode at this time. And so that's their main focus. When they think of what a Mac is for, they think they sell Macs so that people can use Xcode. Do you think that's the only reason? Why? You don't think there's any consumer interest? I mean, well, they're, they're aware of what that consumer interest is, right? And that's the as well as the creative interest for people running Photoshop or, or Creative Suite. Um, it's the people that do like the idea of buying a MacBook, a 12 inch MacBook, and using it for schoolwork or whatever. But they think that most of those people who are not uh, professional developers or the graphic artists, and they think even for the graphic artists that you could move over, that those things could be done on iOS. God, have you used? Uh, I'm not saying they're correct. Oh, I'm not God. saying they're right. I'm just saying that that this is what I think their perspective is. You know, they've yeah. got an Apple Pencil. All artists should be using the iPad Pro. Why would you want to sell them a Mac? Indeed. You know, you've got you've got 
if you look at their educational stuff where they released the educational portal that uh, we were talking about during the last keynote from the Chicago event, they have training for teachers and the training for teachers goes through exercises that you can do with your class. And there they have eight topics for Macs and eight topics for iOS for training the teacher on the devices. And then they have a number of exercises. And the bulk of those exercises are not focused around things that can be done on a Mac. They're focused around things that can be done on iOS. Well, that is where the uh, education push is going. So there's an interesting thing, right? If you remember way back before Windows 95 came out and the two operating systems that were prevalent in homes and the the office at that time were Windows 3.1 and OS 2, IBM's OS 2. And at the time, IBM had a a way where you could run Windows 3.1 apps within OS 2. And what IBM thought was going to happen was that people would run OS 2 at work and Windows at home and occasionally need to bring a Windows app into work and that that's what they do. And that OS 2 was for the work and for the office and Windows 3.1 was for the home. And what actually happened is that people use something at home and they want to use the same thing in the office. And that's that's also what drove the bring your own device a few years ago where people started bringing in iPhones into the workplace and workplace IT had to figure out how to address that and how to handle people bringing in devices rather than being issued a BlackBerry. And so this is the progression. And if kids are using iOS devices, then over time, they won't graduate to a Mac necessarily unless they've already been using a computer at home. They will simply carry that iOS device and grow with it right into the workplace. Right. Except uh, those – it's a it's an analogy but not a direct one, right? Because the iOS devices that we have now arguably cannot do the exact same things that – a Mac does. I mean, we'll see with the, the custom silicon. Right, and, right. You know, but exactly if you've, if you've never used a Mac and you've used an iOS device all this time to do the things that you were going to do, would you know any different? And by the time that those kids reach the workplace, the iOS devices that they will have are not the ones of today. These things right. grow over time. Nothing is stagnant here, right? Yeah, right. It's also two different form factors, right? I mean, I for all the efforts that Apple has put into uh, building up iPad to become a laptop replacement, and for you know it, it has been successful in in some ways. Um, there's just the sheer form factor uh, disparity. I mean, yeah. So that, for, this is one of the things that definitely. that we see, right? There's there's first of all the sanctioned keyboard cases like the Logitech one that's for that educational use, and. There's the notion that Apple's been putting keyboard shortcuts into iOS over time. Eventually, instead of the the keyboard case that you get, the soft cover case as a keyboard, they may just darn well make one. Just as they, you know, looking back, Newton had the E-Mate, which was the one that came with a keyboard built in. They could make an iPad with a native keyboard grafted onto the sucker. Yeah, could be. So, Or they could just port it over to, to a Mac. Right, but at some point... It, it becomes a question of what's what's a Mac versus what's an iPad or iOS if iOS gains enough keyboard shortcuts and you can do things without the touchscreen or you can do things in addition to the touchscreen. Maybe it doesn't have the same window management, but we've already got file sharing coming in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This, is, this is sort of a time where they get to rethink what is the computing paradigm. 
you know, Mac, Mac OS 10 is um, eight, 17 years old. Yeah. Wow. It's Jesus, getting kind yeah. of crufty, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was never, it was never designed to be one of those things that we would stick with forever. Could iOS infuse new life into it? Is the question that that's the question. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. We'll see if they, there's definitely avenues that they could take to integrate iOS into Mac OS and perhaps make a unified operating system. But, um, there's still, you know, those questions about file sharing, for example, um, multitasking, et cetera, that need to be addressed way before we make that switch. Yeah. I, I mean, have a drag years. and drop is very new, right? We just got drag and drop and Dropbox today. So it's, um, yeah. It's one of these or things. Or if you used files, if you used files, you could uh, you could do drag and drop. Yes, but it's although it's, I, I hardly ever go into the files app. So <laughs> it's one of these things where where it's still early days in terms of being that replacement. But I think we yeah. might get there. Could be. Well, I mean, one day there's going to have to be some sort of crossover. People are not going to want to keep buying a Mac and an iPad and an iPhone and an Apple Watch. And an Apple Watch. And a HomePod. And eyeglasses. Yeah, right? It just <laughs> It's a huge long list, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's uh, – there, there were – you know, it's been decades, right, that we have been pining for that one do-it-all device. But it seems like we're just getting more <laughs> more standalones. <laughs> so we as are. As the years go on. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, but – yeah, it's it's interesting that Cook is actually even commenting on on this at this point. Um, he doesn't really have to do that, or he didn't have to do that. So it makes me think that there is something going on. The mere fact that he has said something. Mikey Campbell, yes. where can people find you on the internet? Apple Insider, of course, every day, and uh, on Twitter sometimes, not every day. At uh, Mikey Campbell eighty one. Very cool. You are the 81st Mikey Campbell. There are 80 no. others out there, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. At least. Very cool. All right. I'm Victor. I'm at VMarks on Twitter. And I want to thank all of our listeners for leaving such nice reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate that. So helpful. And if, if you are so inclined, it'd be great if you could do it more. I'm really glad that we had this interview with Oliver Sale of Belkin. Um, it's so unique that we get to do that with someone who's been in an accessory company as long as he has and has that depth of knowledge and experience that he has. And I hope you enjoyed that one. And we will be back next week with more. Um, thanks again. And, and we're looking forward to seeing you back next week. The Apple Insider Podcast is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. You want to expand your potential? With over 65,000 courses starting at just $11.99, Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit Udemy slash Apple Insider, that's U-D-E dot M-Y slash Apple Insider, or download the Udemy app from the iOS App Store to learn anytime, anywhere. Cool, that's it. Nice. Stop recording. <laughs> <laughs>